It is true that there's an 80-20 distribution for almost everything. And so it has been demonstrated time and time again that 20% of salespeople generate 80% of sales. Reliably, 20% of the population had 80% of the wealth or income. Because of the power of the principle, my rate of return for 37 years on average has been 22%. If 20% of something is all that matters. You just concentrate on the things which are really important. This is, a, you know, I think, a pretty foolproof way of making money. We stand today. The Business Method. The business with method. a shout-out. The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that had built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hey, gals and pals, listen up real quick because we have something exciting to share with you. First, for you high-performing entrepreneurs out there, we've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 episodes that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to eight minutes long. These high-performance episodes are being published on Monday and Friday each week and will be labeled as HP number 12345678910 and so on. Those episodes are live now and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content when you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered to you as soon as they are live. The next thing I wanted to share with you is about our private mastermind community for established entrepreneurs. If you have an established business that has good momentum and wanted to be involved in a higher level mastermind community that is curated specifically for entrepreneurs that are moving at the same speed as you with similar challenges, revenue, team size, and business niche, then we've got a group for you. Our private mastermind groups are facilitated by myself, yours truly, and my good friend, Adam Anderson. Adam is a seasoned entrepreneur who's been involved in 20 plus startups over 20 years and recently had a multi-million dollar exit. I keep the members on track with their goals, productivity, and optimization, and Adam brings the vast business knowledge to the groups. Our purpose with this private community is to help you reach your business goals faster so you can remove yourself from your company and focus on bigger and better things. You can learn more about that private community and masterminds at thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. That's thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. And now let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Listeners, welcome to the Business Method podcast today. 13 years ago, I came across a book that I had no idea would change my life as much as it has. That book was called The 80-20 Principle. 
I read it and I immediately applied what it said to my life, seeing results in a matter of only a few days. I continued to apply this method as much as possible throughout the years, using it in both my business and personal life. Little did I know 13 years later, I would be so fortunate enough to interview the author of the book, Richard Koch. He is our guest today, and we're going to dive down the 80-20 rabbit hole with him on what this method is and why it actually works in all areas of life, how you can use it as a superpower to generate significant amounts of money and be happier, healthier, and maintain better relationships. Richard himself is a very successful entrepreneur, investor, and consultant working and investing in hotels, restaurants, the distilling industry, and the internet gaming industry as well. Richard has used the 80-20 principle to make a fortune from several private equity investments and retiring by the age of 40. Richard, how are you doing, my friend? Welcome to the show. Chris, I'm doing great. Thanks very much. And thank you for such a nice introduction. Uh, yeah, I hope I got it all correct. <laughs> yeah. I love your book. When I heard you were coming on, I read it a second time. I used your 80-20 method to read it, where you suggest actually reading a book, the first chapter and the last chapter, and then pick out a few important chapters in the middle. But it was so good that I had to go back and read the entire thing because I was loving it so much. This is a principle I'll use till the day I die. So thank you so much for writing it. I'm really happy to speak with you today, and thank you so much for creating it. The first thing that I did is when I read your book, I 80-20'd my closet. It was incredibly refreshing. Then I 80-20'd my friends, and I had one friend in my life that was creating a vast amount of drama. This was 13 years ago. And so I just, I didn't not be a friend to that friend. I just quit hanging out with that person so much. And that was refreshing. And then I later down the road as an entrepreneur, I 80-20'd a business partner, which we were making pretty good money, but that was bringing significant amount of stress in my life. And I was like, it's got to go. So I missed the money for three, four, five months, but I didn't miss the business partner and I didn't miss the projects that we were working on. So first off, tell us what the principle is, Richard. Tell us who Vilfredo Pareto is, where you heard about it and why you started applying these to your life. Well, let me start with how I came across it, and then I'll explain it, because that's a little bit more difficult. When I was 19 years old, I was sitting in this wonderful library. It's in a great building in Oxford. It's called the Bodleian Library, and it's one of the very few copyright li libraries in the world. I think there are five or six of them. So that means they've got every single book. And someone had mentioned to me, a friend of mine who actually was a, a Marxist, said, I must read this book by Vilfredo Pareto. And I said, yes, what's the title? And he said, oh, it's something like The Course of Economic Theory or, or The Outline of Economic Theory. And it was in French. <laughs> so anyway, my friend said, you must read it. it he, uh, Vilfredo Pareto wasn't a Marxist at all. But my friend said I would find it very interesting. So one day I turned up at the Bodleian Library and asked for this book. I don't think anyone had ever asked for this book. These stacks at the bottom of the, of the building, which go... For miles, I think, underground. And anyway, it took a long time for the book to arrive. And I, fortunately, I brought some other things to read at the same time. And uh, so I read this book. And the bit which really captured my imagination was when he was describing his studies of wealth. And like a good economist, Vilfredo Pareto looked at the statistics on wealth and also on income. And he did that for the, the UK in the 19th century. And he did that for other countries as well. And then he w went back to other centuries. So he looked at it's, it's Italian data, Swiss data, Dutch data, French data, German data, and British data. And he discovered that there was this incredible relationship 
that the further up you went in wealth or income, the fewer people there were, but they were fewer in an exact mathematical relationship. And he used algebra rather than charts to, to do that. And he never used the phrase 80, 20 or anything like that. But okay. the, the whole burden of the message was that reliably 20% of the population had 80% of the wealth or income. And it was a relationship that held all the way up. So actually, if you didn't take the 80 and the 20, but you looked instead at 20% of the 20, which is four, you would discover the those people, just 4% of the population had approximately 64%, which is 80 times 0.8 uh, of the wealth. And so mm -hmm. you could get this on a log scale, you get this perfect line or perfect regression. And he was very excited because he, he had never seen such a, an incredibly close fit that seemed to work across all data and across all countries. Well, I thought this could be quite useful because... One of the things about Oxford University is that they have final examinations and your whole degree depends on writing 11 papers. In my case, it differs from subject to subject. 11 papers answering three or four questions on each paper, three hours exam, 11 times. This was a very daunting prospect. And there I was sitting there. I was in my the second year and I was trying to work out how to get a very good top degree. And so it suddenly occurred to me that perhaps this 80-20 distribution happened on the exam questions. So maybe there were 20% of questions which were asked 80% of the time. Mm. And the questions which they had on the papers were, you know, it was several pages. I mean, it was 50 or 60 different questions. Right. And all you had to do was answer three or four of them. And so I thought, well, if it's true that there are some questions that come up nearly every year, then those are the questions that I will focus on. And that's exactly what I did. And sort of to reduce the risk to tolerable proportions, I made it so that I could answer six questions on each paper. And I got rid of all the rest of the study. So actually, <laughs> you know, there was always a question about the French Revolution, always a question about the causes of the First World War always a question about the rise of socialism and so on and so on. But you, you could be sure that for any particular paper, or at least reasonably sure, that one of those questions or at least three or four of those six were actually going to come up. And it worked like a dream. It was absolutely perfectly correct. But what it meant was that I could actually get a, a very, very good degree with doing 20% of the study. Uh, I didn't actually work all that hard, but I made sure that on the, those questions I was pitch perfect. Now, of course, it works in economics. But then I thought, well, perhaps it would work in other areas. And I never wrote the book when I was an undergraduate. It took 25 years or something before I actually got around to writing this book. And what happened there was quite instructive, because I had written this book called The A to Z of Management, which basically for every subject, you know, for example, venture capital or something like that, I'd write half a page essay. So there was something about everything that you could want to know, even jargon phrases. Nowadays, people would say, reach out. Well, that wasn't something that people used in that day. But, you know, you just basically explain what it meant. Or, you know, what is a lean startup or whatever. I would write half a, maybe sometimes two lines, maybe a half paragraph, sometimes half a page. And I remember the editor who did that book actually came to me and said, why don't you write a book about the 80-20 principle? And I said, Richard, I couldn't possibly write a book about the 80-20 principle. I've written half a page. I might possibly be able to write a couple of pages 
I might even be able to write a chapter, but I certainly couldn't write a, a whole book about it. There's nothing to say, you know, Bill Freire, Pareto, the 80-20 principle, right. 20% of something counting for 80% of something else, the frequency and so on and so forth. 20% of your clothes are... Uh, <laughs> are worn eighty percent of the time. Yeah, yeah, are worn eighty percent of the time. You yeah. need favorite clothes, which help, help you to clear up your closet. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I then said, right, okay, I'm going to apply it to everything. So I looked at things like your friends, your time, your happiness, even as well as the standard stuff about the twenty percent of products will produce eighty percent of profits. Twenty percent. Right customers will present 80% of your profits. So you can actually, I mean, even better than getting rid of your partner is actually getting rid of customers that are actually a nuisance. <laughs> exactly, yeah. find that the customers are use, nuisance. And if you look at it very carefully and you allow for the costs of serving customers, you sometimes find that there's a tiny proportion of them who have a high degree of sales, yes, but actually cause you almost no trouble. Exactly. They're very easy to serve with standard products. There are other customers who are incredibly demanding, requiring special products, requiring you to tailor to their requirements and getting on your nerves very often. Do that analysis, get rid of half your customers and see that your profits increase. And at the same time, the amount of time you have to spend on the business goes down or you can use that time for, for thinking about other things like new products and so on and so forth. So. I, I applied it to everything. So it was a reinterpretation of the 80-20 principle that no one had ever done before. It wasn't that all of the ideas came from my head. I discovered that there was an enormous amount of stuff about 80-20, or it was generally in those days called the Pareto rule. Mm -hmm. And I got rid of that because it's not a rule. It's not always true, but it's an empirical thing. You look for it, and if you find it, you know that it's very useful. So there was an enormous amount of stuff about it, and no one had ever written a book about it. So I was lucky to be the first person to write a book. And as you know, it sold more than a million copies. It's been translated into 40 languages. And still, it, it annoys me sometimes that the 80-20 principle is often the best-selling book for me on a particular day on Amazon. I've written more than 20 books. And this one, which and I still wrote it's going, yeah. Ago, <laughs> it's still top of the pops as far as I'm concerned. I, I see myself as an aging rock star <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> who's got a one-hit wonder, basically. My, my other books do quite well, but no, none has come close to that. But you really uh, changed people's lives with this book. That's the thing. And I actually didn't know you had so many other books, and forgive me for not knowing. I'd love to dive into some of your other stuff. But this shifts people's lives for long-term yeah. thinking. Yeah. And even if maybe they don't apply it as much as I did early in the days, then maybe five years down the road, they're applying it to some business or career, and they think about, oh, yeah, that one book I read that one time, that 80-20 principle. And then they apply it, and they're like, wow, that really did work. And I think that's why it's the longevity. Like, And, and 20 years ago, like you talked about, not a lot of people in business knew it. Now, if you meet somebody that's an entrepreneur, especially if they don't know the principle, they're not up to times, they're not up to, up to date with like what's really happening in business, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it is an amazing uh, thing. And people write me emails. I get emails every day from someone saying they found it very useful. And that's incredibly gratifying as, a, as an author. Yeah, you know, to get that. And the, the variety is enormous. Some people say it helped me in the business. Some people say it helped me in my personal relationships. Some people say it helped me decide where to live. <laughs> Stuff yeah, like yeah. So it was great. It was really good. But I noticed that, that your podcast is very much against busyness. And that's also been my message that actually, if you think about it, 
if 20% of something is all that matters substantially, then actually there's no need to be busy. You just concentrate on the things which are really important, really rewarding, whether it's financially rewarding or psychically rewarding. Mm -hmm. And so I've given it a kind of liberal interpretation, which is very much use it to increase your happiness. Think about the things you do, which give you the most satisfaction, the most gratification, which are most useful to other people and which, you know, you really feel good about. And if people just concentrated on the things that they really enjoy, I think that there would be huge amount more creativity, huge amount new products and services and so on. And people ask me what to do in, in their careers. Everyone's thinking about working incredibly hard, reaching this particular landmark and then getting the next job and being on a fast track and all the rest of it. I try and persuade people to get on a, small, a, a slow track and their own track, a yeah. different track. And so that's why I, I will mention <laughs> another Tell book, us. the one yes. I've just written, which is called Unreasonable Success and How to Achieve It. And I, I don't use the phrase 80-20 principle in it at all, but the methodology that I followed was really quite similar. What I did was to identify 20 people who changed the world in some way, not necessarily for the better, uh, for example, Vladimir Lenin, who I regard as a very unfortunate addition to humanity, was in the book. I wanted Adolf Hitler to be in the book, but my publishers wouldn't let Lenin <laughs> leave him out. <laughs> no one better than I live at Lenin, but, but Hitler, uh-huh. no, nobody wanted Hitler in the book. These people achieved something, and in Hitler's case, it was very negative things, right. but nevertheless, they did this by unconsciously i'm sure by following nine particular what i call landmarks which Mm -hmm. are reasons why people were successful and i've included jeff bezos in the book i included a couple of other industrialists madonna's in there bob dylan's in the book and uh, albert einstein is leonardo da vinci so i've sort of gone gone back in time as well as taken contemporary people as well and each one of these 20 people visited as i put it the landmarks. And for for example, I'll just give a couple of examples, if I may. Yes, please. Uh, one is self-belief. You know, okay. I mean, it's so obvious that you can't change the world unless you really believe in what you're doing. And so few people really do cultivate self-belief that if you're one of the very few, you've actually got a huge start on other people. And I made the interesting discovery that But in nearly all cases, I think it was 17 out of the 20 people, the self-belief was not something that these people were born with. It was something that developed over time. And I looked at the reasons why it developed. And I say to people, well, actually, you can develop self-belief. You get acquire self-belief through actually doing something that's usually very focused and which you achieve success in because you you know more about it than anybody else. And that generates the self-belief and the confidence uh, mm-hmm. which you need. And so another example, which is an original example, which the discovery of actually looking at the lives of these 20 people was each one of them had a transforming experience, what I call a transforming experience at some stage in their life. And that's when you actually go into a particular company sometimes, or it's sometimes an educational establishment, sometimes it's a group of friends, sometimes it's a social cause, Sometimes it's a place, but you actually come out of that a year later or however much longer is relevant as a different person, as someone who's got rare knowledge in some cases, knowledge other people don't have, and that gives you a degree of authority and, and, again, focus, because 
you know something that other people don't know. Right. And that is the way to be successful. Mastery, and, right? Mastery. Uh, you know, there are, there are seven other uh, things that, that either strategies or things, experiences that happen to people, in some cases, attitudes. And I explore that. And I say, well, look, it's called unreasonable success because the people in the book didn't really deserve their success. Like me, with <laughs> my degree at Oxford. <laughs> it's unreasonable because it's very rare. It's unreasonable also because it relies very often on intuition rather than rational thinking. And there are all sorts of reasons why it's unreasonable. But most, most important is that the people don't really deserve it. But on the other hand, if you want to change the world, uh, you don't have to deserve it. And the universe doesn't work like that. You have to do certain things. And those are the things that I describe in the book. I have a question about that book, if I may. Can I? Yeah. yeah. So actually, in the eighty twenty principle, you talk about like section uh, section seven is the st- uh, steps to time revolution, and you mm-hmm. seg- suggest like eliminating, reducing low value activities, like we talked about the busy- busyness of life. Is this book like the people you look up to that apply the eighty twenty? Maybe not Vladimir Putin, but uh, the people you kind of that inspire you that have applied the eighty twenty rule in their lives. Is this book talking about a lot of those people? Well, I didn't, I didn't set out to do that. And in fact, I thought this is a different methodology. It has a lot of parallels with 8020. I mean, for example, the fact that there are only nine landmarks that they all shared in common. I started with a list of 50 uh-huh. and I worked through that. And if they, all of them didn't actually have this landmark, I eliminated that. So in a sense, there was a sort of cutting out uh, process. But actually, one of, the, one of the things that people have criticized, and I think it's, it's a very interesting criticism, perhaps often a valid criticism about the 80-20 principle, is if you apply it too simplistically, you might say, well, actually, life becomes pretty arid because you only concentrate on relatively few things. Whereas we all need variety and stimulation and doing things that are not related to our work or not related to our particular social life. And they're just sort of random things that happen. One of the findings in the book is that people didn't plan their success. And actually, they often went down rabbit holes, which interested them, which seemed completely and utterly irrelevant to Mm. anything. Yeah. Like Albert Einstein thinking about, was time relative or was time absolute? Well, that's not something that most people think about. (laughs) And nobody had thought about that before him. And he came up with a theory of relativity. And then it changed the whole world. It changed cosmology. It it changed the physics. It changed the understanding of the micro world. It had relationships for good and bad to nuclear power and so on and so forth. So sometimes it's quite right to actually, maybe there's an 80-20 of interest rather than an 80-20 of immediate usefulness and achievement. But progress depends on people having these peculiar obsessions and following them. And one of the, the landmarks is called Find Your Own Trail, which basically means don't do what other people are doing, but develop your own philosophy and your own way of approaching things. That is not something that you derive directly from the 80-20 principle. Mm-hmm. So there are only three principles <laughs> that I believe in that I've discovered which are really useful. One, one is this unreasonable success principle. Okay. The second is the 80-20 principle. And the third is the star principle, the idea that you should go for when you're investing or when you're starting a business, what you really want to do is be in a very high growth market. It doesn't matter if it's very small to start with, but you are the leader in your niche. You, nobody does what you do 
and is bigger than you. And that star principle is the whole basis of my other life, which is not writing books, but is actually investing. So I invest in small businesses. I've been doing that for 37 years. I started one business myself at the beginning of 37 years and sold my shares in that five years later, six years later. And then I went on to invest in other businesses, nearly all of which were star businesses. And I know that you're interested in results. So I'm not bragging out of turn here, but because of the power of the principle, not because of my genius, which doesn't exist, but the, <laughs> the, the principle is such that my rate of return for 37 years, on average, has been 22%, or actually it's just gone up 23%. During that whole period, it stayed within the band between 20% and 25% as a cumulative return. And it's such a simple idea, and it's relatively easy to find those businesses. not always very easy to be able to invest in them. I'm, I'm staggered because everyone, or a lot of people anyway, want to make money. And this is, a, you know, I think, a pretty foolproof way of making money. It's not difficult to describe, and it's not that difficult to do. And yet, there isn't a single private equity or venture capital firm in the world that actually does it that way exclusively. There are some, Bain Capital had some aspects of it, but certainly not saying that the, the primary or exclusive principle should be the star principle. So right. that's, a, that's the third book, which I'm very proud of and think is one of the principles, which if everyone followed it, There'd be more companies which were very successful, obviously not never a majority of companies because you can only have one leader in a particular area, you can have several followers. But nevertheless, I think we'd have far more great new products, we'd have far new, more great new services and ways of doing business, and wealth would be much greater than it is. But I mean, there may be someone listening to this podcast who said, well, why don't I start a venture capital firm dedicated to the star principle? And yeah. I wouldn't want to do that because I think the idea of managing other people's money is, is just horrible. It's huge <laughs> That's not your 80-20, right? And if it doesn't go right, they complain <laughs> like hell. Uh, and quite rightly so. But no, I wouldn't want to do it. But I, I quite like someone else to do it because I'm not so lonely. <laughs> yeah. So anybody has any ambitions of starting a private equity firm, right? These are the books to get. Actually, I'm going to order those two books as soon as we get off here. I've got your other book, Beyond the 80-20 Principle, uh, which I haven't tapped into yet. I ordered it when I reordered this book, the newer edition, but I'm excited to tap into that one because, I mean, this stuff is just absolutely fascinating. And you mentioned in the 80-20 principle how important it is in today's world because we're moving faster, technology is different, there's competition is fierce. But if we could dissect maybe real quick, Richard, how you apply the 80-20 in different sections of the businesses, because we do have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the podcast and aspiring entrepreneurs. So just like real quick, from a marketing perspective, how would you apply the 80-20 rule? The first way that I'd apply it is by doing a profitability analysis, a very careful profitability analysis of customers and products separately. So take okay. your products and identify what the the fully costed profitability is about us. I say fully costed because it's easy to find out what the gross margin is. It's just sales minus the cost of the stuff that goes into it, the cost of, of, of goods sold. It's very easy to do that. It's not too difficult to then say, well, for each element of cost, if we're looking at the most important products, the, the largest products which we've got, how much time is involved in producing them. Very often, if you take a factory, for example, you often find that there are some products which are manufactured in very long runs where they're standard products 
you just set the machines going and it just basically churns away. There are other special products which require the line to be stopped, which require special characteristics, special inputs, maybe uh, raw materials. In a food factory, there would be different types of uh, inputs, ingredients into the, the product. And people never generally look at the impact of that on product cost. Mm-hmm. But one of the things which, which we always did when I started a, a strategy consulting firm, uh, along with two other people, was always to do that analysis. And it produced shocking results, which actually fit in very well with the 80-20 principle. Because some products actually lost money, you could have a situation where the top 20% would make 150% of the profits and the bottom 20% might lose 50% of the profits. Well, my old mentor, Bill Bain, always used to say the best way to start making money is to stop losing money. (laughs) So, like cutting out stuff, the stuff that's not useful in your closet. Well, products are like (laughs) that. And customers are like that as well, very much so. As I mentioned earlier, some customers are complete pain. Other customers are wonderful to deal with, and they don't realize how profitable they are for you. Yeah. Uh, and again, you get the situation where many customers are actually loss-making. And the few customers that are very profitable, no one actually stops to say, well, could we find more people like this? What is the common characteristic of the people who are actually uh, making us a lot of money, the customers who are making us a lot of money? Maybe brainwave we should try and find more of them yeah oh yes (laughs) and and then bill bain also used to say i don't understand what what, he was running a consulting firm so he said i don't understand why everyone's obsessed with who's going to be this new client oh there's a new client that's a fabulous he used to say your best new client is your existing client and he made that an art so you'd start by billing a a million dollars a year to the particular company but Bill wouldn't be happy unless next year it was two million. And the year after that, it was four million. The year after that, it was eight million and so on and so forth. And nobody used to do that. I mean, McKinsey, venerable firm, which at the time that Bain & Company and BCG was started, Boston Consulting Group was started. McKinsey was the industry leader. They never billed anybody $10 million a year, any client. Even the very biggest corporations, Coca-Cola, you know, they wouldn't actually have the audacity to say, well, actually, we think we can sell $10 million worth of of consulting to these people. Bill Bain had got this wonderful formula. It's not only do you focus on the 20% of corporations that actually could be huge clients. Mm -hmm. He also focused on the 1% of people in the organization or 0.0001% who could actually use it, i.e. he focused on the chief executive. No one had done that before. So he actually made it a rule that you couldn't work for a a company unless you work for the chief executive. And of course, you get bigger budgets. There's more chance of implementing whatever you come up with. Because the guy who's got the power is on your side and you spend a lot of time talking to that guy. And he is hugely more important to yeah. you and to changing the company than almost the whole of the rest of top management, not yeah. to mention middle management. So, you know, that was another that's another illustration of the way of thinking about the 80-20 principle in a completely different way. And I'm not necessarily saying that Bill Bain actually realized that he was using the 80-20 principle, but I certainly did. 
Yeah. And it became it became part of uh, the philosophy when we started a, another consulting firm. It was our philosophy as well. Have very few clients, but try and have them at a very high level and make sure that you're working for the right person, that you're working for the chief executive. So for your team, how would you apply the 80-20 looking at your employees and management for them? I've got very unfashionable views on this, actually. I mean, Great. <laughs> I do believe what's been demonstrated for salespeople beyond reasonable doubt is also true for nearly every other category of manager or executive. Okay. And that is that there are very few of them who produce a huge amount of the really valuable outputs. And so it has been demonstrated time and time again that 20% of salespeople generate 80% of sales. Right. You know, counterintuitive. You can use that to drag up the others by, you know, getting the 20% to train the other people on how to do it. But then you always have a 20% of a 20%. And there are always someone who is very preeminent. A lot of people complain about the very unequal distribution of wealth, where particularly in the United States, there is this huge pyramid and the person at the top is making 200, 200,000, whatever times the money that the person on the shop floor is making. Well, yeah, that's true. And it's socially, it's an issue, definitely. But the truth is that they're generating often, not always, that they're generating a huge percentage more. Yeah. That's that's the truth about entrepreneurs as opposed to ordinary managers in corporations. You know, I don't have much time for someone who's earning a huge amount of money and he's at the top of a corporation and he's got a board of directors who are all in, on the same gravy train. So they're all from similar backgrounds. Uh, there might be a compensation committee that sort of makes the rules and all the rest of it, but everyone's scratching everyone else's back. Mm-hmm. And these top people in, in large established companies have very often not really done anything particularly useful. Some of them have. You think about certain examples where people really have changed the company. But in most cases, they've inherited the company. They, they've been lucky in that they're in a time where their market is growing. Mm-hmm. They've been lucky that they've had weak competitors. They've been lucky that the formula of the company was very profitable. And of course, under their regime, profits may have tripled or or whatever. That doesn't justify huge rewards because there's no necessary link between them. But the great thing is entrepreneurs stand or fall by their achievement. You know, there are are no entrepreneurs who are unreasonably successful in that sense. You know, they're they're perfectly reasonably successful. And so I, I think... It isn't always true, but because there's an 80-20 distribution, that's a good thing. But it is true that there's an 80-20 distribution for almost everything. One of the things that I applied it most to was the question of time. Because I do strongly believe that each of us has times when we're worth $10,000 an hour and other times when we're really not worth anything at all. <laughs> and, You're right. you know, so we all do stuff which we shouldn't be doing. And this was another thing which I learned in Bain & Company that always said, and this was a great philosophy if you were towards the top of the organization, you should never do anything, Chris, or Richard, you should never do anything if someone else who costs half of what you cost could actually do it 70% or 80% or 90% as well. This isn't an application of the 80-20 principle, by the way, because you need two sets of data there. So push down as much as possible. And you might be able to do it better, Chris, than somebody else. Right. But do you do it that much better? And concentrate on the things, the very few things which we all do, which actually generate massive wealth. 
Now, what are those things? Well, it might be starting a business, thinking of an idea to start a business. It might be a new product that you come up with, which turns out to be more successful than all the other products. I mean, think about uh, Steve Jobs. Yeah, the Mac was a great machine, but he didn't start being really unreasonably successful until he started doing the iPod and the iPad and the Mm -hmm. iPhone and all of those wonderful devices, which came up, you know, in the very twilight almost of his career. Right. You know, so... Couldn't he have had some of those ideas a bit earlier? Couldn't his team have made those things a bit earlier? Instead of just worrying about your market share <laughs> in, in computers, in laptops, which was never great? going to get a win that battle for the highest market share in that area, perhaps in an, as a small niche, you know, yeah. with people who were very sensitive to artistic sort of needs and, and nice fonts and colors and, and all the rest. <laughs> you know, let's have some new ideas. Let's have some new products. I love and that. Sometimes is actually coming with a business formula that's more important than the product. Wow. Like Bill Bain, no one actually thought of consulting in, in the terms that he did, how to make more money out of consulting. Oh, focus on the chief executive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the decision maker, right? <laughs> I mean, that was that was worth a billion dollars, probably. Just yeah. That, that single idea. Yeah. And and likewise, we all can come up with ideas. An idea is useless unless you actually do something about it. But we can do something about it as well. So those are the times when we actually are making a huge amount of money. And no one keeps track of this because you get even an executive in, in a, a venture, an entrepreneurial organization will get paid a ton of money. No one ever stops to think, well, when is he generating $10,000 an hour? And mm-hmm. when is he generating $100 an hour? Right. Shouldn't they be doing more of the stuff which generates the 10000 Yeah. Yeah. It's not rocket science, is it? Once you start <laughs> thinking in those terms. It's just a little shift of mindset that changes everything for people, yeah. right? So we've got about 10 minutes left, Richard, and I really want to talk about you. In the new edition of the 8020 Principle, you added four new chapters. One of them talks directly about networks and network businesses and how understanding these actually helped you change the way that you saw the 80-20 principle even a bit more. If you don't mind describing what a network and network business is in relation to your book, and then why anybody in the world would be crazy not to start one or not to work for one in today's world. I actually can do that with an example, because when I made an investment in a betting exchange, in 2001, this was a company called Betfair. It was a different kind of business because historically there had always been bookmakers of one sort or another, but these are people who set the odds and then uh, basically charge you well over the odds for for that. You know, on a roulette wheel, particularly in America, where you have two zeros, Uh uh, there's a 5% profit margin for the house every time they spin the little ball because the 38 numbers Mm -hmm. Uh, 36 real numbers and two which are exclusively for the bank the zero and the double zero and so that means that the 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 bank is taking all of that profit whereas they should really be paying up 35 to one and not having any zeros at all well the same applied in horse racing the same applied in football match every type of betting would have an over round as they call it in other words the profit for the bookmaker of between 10 and 20 percent right and the guy I came across who'd invented that, that guy called Bert Black, he invented a betting exchange. Well, in a way, a betting exchange was just like an electronic stock market. You might say, well, that, you know, that didn't take any inventing, did it? But of course, no one else had, had thought of the idea. But the great thing about that business was that it was a network business. Now, why was it a network business? 
in the first few years that the company existed, when I was a shareholder, the value of the company was going up many times every single year, which helped my compound annual growth rate in assets, obviously. The company spent nothing on marketing. Zero. Zilch. Nada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was nothing. How could they possibly grow, and as they did in the early days, of 30, 40, 50% a month, not a year? How could they do that? Because it was a network business. And the, the characteristic of a network business is that the more people there are in the network, the more valuable it is. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the people who wanted to place bets on Betfair initially started out, but they had problems because not enough people were on the system, which meant that only about 60% of the time could your bet be fulfilled? So you might post and say, I'm willing to take three to one against this particular horse or whatever it was. Well, only 60% of the time would that be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And Betfair realized that what the, what they needed to do was to have more people on the system so that there could be more bets which were actually fulfilled and bigger bets as well. What happened was instead of trying to then tell everyone how wonderful a betting exchange was, they got the customers to do it. And indeed, they were one of the first people to really uh, get the art of getting other people to find customers. And they, both the new customer and the old customer, got some financial reward for that. But that wasn't the reason that most people wanted to get more people onto the system. It was because, firstly, they enjoyed it more. Mm-hmm. And secondly, the more people there were, the better it would be for everyone. It's not just betting things. It's, I mean, for example, one fax machine is useless, one telephone is useless, but exponentially the value goes up the bigger the size of the network. And obviously this applies to social media as well. You know, you wouldn't post on Twitter. Maybe you shouldn't post anyway, but you wouldn't post on Twitter if there are only 10 people in the world who are on Twitter. But, right. you know, so, you know, the more people there are, the more valuable the thing becomes. And that's the characteristic of a network business. But one of the important corollaries of that is that you don't necessarily need to spend a lot of money on marketing. A lot of the growth is self-generated by people finding other people who they persuade to be part of the system. Yeah. It's, a, it's a snowball and it just sort of, you know, rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls until, you know, something like Facebook consumes <laughs> half a population in Australia is on Facebook. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And you get that with network businesses. In a way, a network business is a subset of a, a star business because, you know, a successful network business is always the leader in its niche and the niche is very high growth. Right. But it's an additional qualification all network businesses are or successful network businesses are star businesses but not all star businesses are network businesses and similarly you know most network businesses make use of the internet now that wasn't always true particularly when the internet did not exist you still had network businesses for example auto trader which started life yeah. as a magazine yeah. where you buy and sell cars and it's basically the, the whole idea of classified advertising. Now, that's a situation where you have a different sort of network business because the buyers attract the sellers and the sellers attract the buyers. Right. So, you know, it's more valuable to both sides the more there are. But there, there's, it's a two-sided marketplace. But if they're network businesses, they can grow very fast. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think anyone who invests in a business that isn't a network business or isn't on the internet or isn't a star business 
is absolutely nuts. <laughs> no, I understand because the potential for those are phenomenal. But do you think there's any unfilled niche for network businesses out there that you've seen that somebody should apply or somebody should fill? Oh, well, I, I'm not going to tell you about that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I to do it yeah. <laughs> of course, there are hundreds. Yeah. Uh, I come, come across them every day. that's for another conversation i've always noticed this 80 20 principle and why it really works especially with the wealth staying with the top 20 percent or even 10 or 5 or 1 percent one of the reasons is that like you know successful people like doing business with other successful people right and you mentioned the the 80 20 of the clients and the customers we have an example i have an example of we had two different segments of clients one that were in six-figure businesses and one in seven-figure businesses And the six-figure businesses paid us the same, but they were more challenging to deal with. They demanded more things. And seven-figure businesses just took care of themselves when we worked with them, when we did our consulting with them. And it was just so nice. So we were like, okay, let's just focus on the seven-figure businesses because it was easier, right? And so that's kind of why that wealth stays up there. Do you have any anybody at top of mind, Richard, that you really admire that has taken the 80-20 principle and used it in their life and businesses? And you mentioned uh, a couple names throughout the podcast and in your book. But anybody that kind of stands out that maybe we should do look into and research more about how they're applying it in business and life? Yes. <clears throat> there are two people who are enormously important to me. Uh-huh. And they are actually in this book, Unreasonable Success, which I'm I'm now realizing I should have a U.S. edition, which is uh, <laughs> blue color. So I don't expect it to be this gold color, but it does say Unreasonable Success and how to achieve it mm-hmm. on, on the cover. And they were Bill Bain, that I mentioned before, of Bain and & Company, and right. Bruce Henderson. And okay. they both understood the 80-20 principle very much. And particularly after I'd written the book, but before that, they actually knew and they applied it. I think you could say Jeff Bezos is a very good example of someone who focuses on the 80-20 principle, Mm -hmm. because what he was trying to do was create, you might say, well, of course, he covers the whole waterfront of products. In Mm -hmm. fact, most products are actually available on, on Amazon these days, and they have a very high market share in most categories. But... He focused very much on his way of doing business, which has two motifs, which cut across almost different categories. One is that you provide unparalleled customer service. You never have a quibble from Amazon if you want to send something back or whatever. Customer service is very good. They originated the one-click system. and, And the guy is absolutely obsessed with providing absolutely brilliant customer service, but also unbeatable prices. Right. And of course, unbeatable prices happen because they beat down all the suppliers. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't come at their expense. <laughs> and you look at someone like who's totally focused, Elon Musk is, is the same thing, you know, different kettle of fish and personality, but the same sort of thing. If you look at almost any really successful person in business mm-hmm. or outside business, in a way they're reflective of the of the 80-20 principle. Is there anyone I particularly admire? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think Bezos is very admirable for having pioneered that, and also for pioneering the idea that it didn't matter how much profit you made, <laughs> which must have driven his finance guys. Crazy, and, uh, right? <laughs> and the shareholders, absolutely crazy. He always said, if you try and look more than a few hours ahead in this business, you're lost. And yeah. what matters is the real long term. And so Amazon operated with almost no margins for the first 15 years or so. 
And now, of course, they're beginning to generate that. And they have the sky-high price-earnings ratio, hundreds of times of the value of the company compared to the profits that they make. Yeah. But over time, more and more of the, the profit is actually coming out because they're much bigger and also because they're gradually taking a little bit more of the pie. And so, therefore, this absurd price-earnings ratio, which everyone said was absurd back in 1997, I remember a friend of mine who's a very good, very clever guy, saying Amazon can't possibly be worth whatever the market capitalization was then, which was probably about $500 million. You know, yeah. and, and it sort of defied, it defied rational analysis. But if you have a formula then, and you really believe in it, then things can be you know, incredibly valuable. So I suppose I admire him. But I like to admire people who are more admirable for other reasons. And so, I mean, I admire Albert Einstein very much. And again, someone who's dead. Who's, can I think of someone who's alive? That I think is truly wonderful. I'm sure there are lots of them. I can't think of anyone <laughs> right off the spur of the moment. But yes, I mean, some people just achieve the most fantastic things. And Steve Jobs is a very good example because, in many ways, in his personal life, in the way that he treated his daughter, Lisa, who he named the computer after but never spoke to virtually, you know, mm-hmm. they were not role models that you could be very proud of. But on the other hand, you think about how. The, the products, the devices, which Steve Jobs was responsible for bringing to market, even though he himself didn't do it, but he made it happen. You know, how much have people's lives been enriched by things like iTunes and the iPod? You know, yeah. huge music, very important. It wasn't very important in my life 15, 20 years ago, and it's very important in my life now because you can get anything that you like, you know, and then you think about all the other companies that have done that as well. Yeah. Uh, or you think about the iPhone, which, of course, has its drawbacks. But nevertheless, it's such an amazing conglomeration of different things. And it's beautiful. And it's just unbelievably useful and unbelievably simple. Yeah. And so therefore, I suppose I admire him. But he's dead as well. So who do I (laughs) Well, we're at time, Richard. I don't don't mean to kick you out, but I know you have another point. No, no, I've got to go. That's right. I told told you at the beginning. But thank you very much indeed. I think uh, I hope your, your listeners and your viewers... I think they'll uh, love well, this. Yeah, uh, buy buy the book, the Eighty Twenty Principle. Buy unreasonable. Buy your new best. book. Yes, Amazon is the best place to check yeah, it out. Yeah, they're all available on Amazon. Obviously, just type in Richard Kosh and the title. Okay. Don't have to go that far. <laughs> I want to thank you so much, Richard, for coming on the show and sharing all your Not wisdom all, with Chris. us. Thank you very much indeed for asking me. It's, it's, it's a great pleasure talking to you. It's Thanks been a, a fantastic Bye pleasure. Now. Listeners, we're going to sign off there. Thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you all later. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.